Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you today as a people um, desperate for wisdom and desperate to worship you. Father, I pray that as we, um, as we go to your word today um, to learn more about you and grace and our sin and, um, and your redemption, I pray that, uh, that we would worship you through that and we beg for, for wisdom that only comes through the Spirit. Um, and Father, today we proclaim as a people that you're true and holy and good and you keep your promises, you're faithful, you're loving, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we're here to worship you today and we ask this in your name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first of all, I want to lift up a uh, man and his wife, Billy and Cindy Hempstead. Lord, we want to pray for Cindy, and uh, we pray with Billy for healing. We pray for response to the treatment. Um, Lord, with uh, Billy, we are concerned and fearful, but at the same time, with Billy, we're trusting you and your will. Lord, we pray that through this time that Billy and Cindy are going through, that you will be glorified and that Billy will come to know you in a deeper and richer way, that he will see your grace and your mercy and your fingerprints all over this difficulty. Lord, we pray that Billy and those surrounding Billy and Cindy will see this as a time that all things, in fact, do work together for good, for those who are called according to your purpose, that this too is an all thing. Lord, we pray for Cindy. We pray that we share the desire of our heart along with Billy's is for healing. We trust you, Lord. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Rick and Julie Prettyman. I want to pray for the church that they've been called to pastor with the other elders at Aldersgate. Lord, we pray for this church. We pray for your glory and your fame and renown. We pray for white-hot, passionate, dependent, needy worship. Lord, I pray that the gospel each week is uh, arresting Rick and shaping him to be the husband and the father that he should be. Lord, I pray for fatigue that he likely experiences at times. Lord, I pray that he is surrounded by men as I am here who will stand in the gap and relieve him from mountain climbing for a week or two here and there. Pray for refreshment. Pray that he is being filled, that he can pour out on each Sunday. Lord, this morning for this people, I pray for a really specific and personal engagement with the good news. I pray for those people who are here this morning that were dragged here that their brother or their sister or their mother or father, grandparent, friend, said, hey, man, please go to church. I pray for that person that's thinking this is a drag. Lord, I pray that this good news gets all up in their face. I pray that this good news arrests that one with the scandal of Christ crucified and risen. And that that dragged one is shocked by the gospel this morning. On the other end of the continuum, Lord, I pray for those that are here just because it's Sunday morning. 
and because that's what we do. I pray that we can engage the gospel newly this morning. I pray that every one of us that already knows you can be surprised and amazed at the goodness of it. That we can see your righteousness in the foreground of the backdrop of our unrighteousness. Pray that you will speak clearly in spite of me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's message is in some ways what you would have engaged this week in small group. Um, last week's message was sort of connecting with a context and a story of a guy named Peter. And we had an illustration that's ripe for the picking. We kind of brushed up against it, and small groups would have had an opportunity to really pick that ripe fruit this week. But knowing what the schedule was like this week and knowing that most small groups, uh, if they met at all, met more for fellowship and, uh, than they did actual for Bible exposition this week, I've been just burdened to pick that ripe fruit today. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to re-engage this story of Peter. We're going to go back and grab some of the context that we looked at last week. And we're going to look at Peter's story through the lens of the book of Romans. We're not going to cover the entire book of Romans, but we're going to cover some chunks. And I hope that you, like me, will see yourself in Peter. And you, like me, will experience the good news through this morning's message. Let's begin in Luke chapter 5. We're going to re-engage Peter's context. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Great beginnings for Simon Peter. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These three guys, Peter and James and John, became, became sort of Christ's inner circle. These guys were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything, walked away from their work trucks, walked away from their boats, their version of work trucks, and they followed him. 
great beginnings for Peter and a great and convicting and true recognition. Lord, I am a sinful man and you're not. You've just done something amazing and I fall down appropriately at your feet. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, you know, some people say he's John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this awesome, ultimate reality to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A profound moment in the life of this man named Peter. A profound moment in the life of the church where Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm going to build my church on the likes of you, Peter. A profound confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a profound recognition. Hey, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven revealed to you who I am. This is an awesome moment in the life of the church for Peter as well. Now turn to John chapter 13. The story develops for Peter. context here for chapter 13 is the Lord's Supper on the eve of his cross. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's predicted betrayal. He's developing in the disciples the realization that that he's going to a place where they can't go. He's going somewhere where they can't go. They followed him for three years. They left their boats. They left everything to follow him. So as you would expect, they're pretty concerned. So Peter speaks up for them. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. The other versions or the other gospels, not versions, the other gospels sort of round this event out. And they tell us that he said, though all fall away, I will never fall away. I will never bail on you, Jesus. You can depend on me. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. If this is all the data that we have so far, all the information that we had, and this was the story we would expect that Peter, the rock that Christ is going to build his church on, 
the, the, the apostle or the disciple that on its earth, his beginning day, on the day where he's called, says, man, I'm a sinful man, and he falls at his knees and worships. We would expect that, yeah, he would be true. If anybody's going to be true, homeboy's going to be true. He will never bail on Jesus. Petros, the rock, will never bail on Jesus. We would probably agree with Peter. Peter, you'll never fail Christ because you're the rock. Though all fall away, you will find me true relative to the others. Now turn to John chapter 18. That's the backdrop or the context for what we're about to see here in chapter 18 of John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The other gospels tell us clubs and spears. Satan slithered into Eden. He's storming into Gethsemane. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, like David and Goliath, he comes forward and says to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Appropriate. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, the main character so far, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now John doesn't develop this, but the other gospels tell us that Jesus reached down, picked up the ear, Blew the grass off of it, I hope. Popped it back on his head. Pop, healed. Just like that. And I've wrestled with why this is developed here. Why even provide his name? I don't have an answer for why he's providing his name. But I do have an answer. I believe that this is connected to what we're about to see in Peter. That Peter is operating according to a different kingdom. See, later in this chapter, Jesus has a conversation with Pilate about real authority. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my men would be fighting. But I'm operating according to a different kingdom. But Peter was fighting. He's operating according to the wrong kingdom. It's a great intro to what we're about to see unfold with Peter. So Jesus turns to Peter. He says, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me and walk according to his kingdom? not walking according to your kingdom, Peter. You might connect another passage. Get behind me, Satan. Very appropriate connection. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Expedient indeed. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That's likely John because John often refers to himself without naming himself in the book of John. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Watch. Peter, though, stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, I guess just as he's passing by, Hey, aren't you one of them? You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, uh uh-uh. No, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a nice toasty charcoal fire because it was cold. And they're standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Because his fingers were cold. Quaint. The high priest then in the background is questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered them, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, back to Simon Peter, warming himself by the toasty charcoal fire. They said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's why I think they're connected, said, it's Malchus's cousin or something. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Yeah, when Jesus put that ear right, popped it right back on Malchus's head, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Three denials. The first one seems sort of innocent. Passing by the entrance into the courtyard, talking to the maiden. No, I don't know him. The second one we know from the book of Matthew also included an oath. An oath would have been something referencing something religious, some religious thing, institution or artifact or object. By the temple, I don't know the man. His denials are escalating. The first one's just, I don't know him. The second one, by the altar, I don't know the man. By Gilgal, I don't know the man. And then the third denial, called down curses on himself, would have been to invite God's wrath on himself. Yahweh, pour down your curses and your wrath on me if I'm not telling the truth. I don't know the man. Escalating denials from the rock. Petros. And then the cock crows immediately. And obnoxious and loud and audible and ugly marker of Peter's sin. The man that said, I'll never bail on you, Jesus. You can depend on me. I will die for you. And then a look from Christ's Savior and substitute across the courtyard. Just a look. I see you, Peter, and you need to see what I'm about to do. This is an awesome, awesome 
and difficult and dark night for Peter. Now turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We're going to come back to John later and see what happens to Peter. But first we're going to look at Romans 1 and we're going to look for Peter. Let me give you some background for Romans as you're turning there. The book of Romans is written to a relatively problem-free church. Now I'm saying relatively because there's no such thing as a problem-free church. But relative, say for example, the Corinthians, the Romans seem to be doing pretty good. Relative to the problem of the Judaizers and Galatians, the book of Romans seems to be just a pastor sharing his heart about the gospel with a group of Jews and Gentiles that make up the church in Rome. It's a great book because it's just sort of exposing the good message from a pastor's heart. You don't have to try and peel through the problems. If there are any problems that are dealt with in the book of Romans, it's the problem between Jew and Gentile. And there was and likely will always be a problem between Jew and Gentile. It occurred to me, why in the world do we have Messianic Jewish churches? Just the fact that we have Messianic Jewish churches tells me there's still a Jewish Gentile problem. We ought to all be together, eating these books together, eating these letters that Paul wrote to the churches in New Testament, dealing with the Jewish Gentile problem. If there's a problem at all that's dealt with in the book of Romans, it's the Jewish and Gentile problem. And Paul is the right guy to speak to it, being a Jew among Jews, taught at like Harvard of Judaism by a man named Gamaliel, but also bringing the good news to the Gentiles. He's the right guy to reckon with this problem. Verses 1 through 7 are just sort of intro. I'm not going to read those, but I'm going to pick up in verse 8. eight. And we're going to read verse, beginning in verse 8 just for the sake of context. First, Roman church, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It seems like this church is pretty healthy. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul had not made it to the Roman church. He longed to. He wanted to. And at this point, he had not been there. He says, I long to see you. See, he did long. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel, that's what this book is about, to you. Now, I want you all to pay attention to the reality that this letter apparently is written to a healthy church, and he's saying, but I'm going to unfold the gospel for you. He's not saying, I'm assuming y'all got that. Oh, I already got that. (laughs) That was Christianity 101. Can we move on to 201 or 301? He's dealing with the basics of the gospel. Let me tell you something right now. If you don't have the basics of the gospel down, your whole lens on the world is messed up. You will view what happened in Japan as God snoozing. Or the devil getting one on God. You won't look for God's glory in something like that. 
You won't understand the tragedies and difficulties that you go through as a family. You won't even understand them. The gospel's foundational for everything. And we not only need to, be, need to land on it from the outset, we have to be reminded of it. We have to be stirred up by way of reminder so that we come back to it because we get forgetful. And we gravitate toward trying to earn or maintain our salvation. That's what happened in the life of the church. I'm about to tell you about that. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We need Peter's illustration of this good news in Romans so that we can be stirred up to what the gospel is. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you guys. Until then, I'm just going to teach it in a letter. Verse 16 and 17, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's also a Gentile thing and to every nation. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Another, another um, interpretation of that last phrase I want you to get. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. Now, the rest of this book is about that verse. This verse and a man named Martin Luther are the reason that I'm not wearing a funny hat right now. This verse... And a man named Martin Luther are the reason that you're not coming to purchase indulgences right now to pay for your sin and your family's sin or your deceased family's sin to buy their way out of purgatory. This verse and a man named Martin Luther are the reason that you're not living, making pilgrimages and doing these religious acts Touching the place where Jesus supposedly was born or the place where he supposedly was buried. This verse in a man named Martin Luther liberated us from all that. Because the church had gravitated toward earning salvation through baptism and maintaining salvation through penance and indulgences. Because see, whenever you sinned after your baptism, you lost some of your grace. So you had to go get some more of it through paying penance for your sin. Or you had to pay for some indulgences to purchase your way out of purgatory where you would pay for your sin. This verse, man, not only is it the, the, the key verse for the rest of the book, it's the reason that we're not Catholic. I'm going to share a couple of writings with you. One is a writing from... Martin Luther, it's called a tower experience when he came upon this verse and he reckoned with it. It is an awesome, awesome moment. The tower experience, he's studying chapter 1, verse 17 in the heated room of the tower of the Black Cloister in Wittenberg, Germany. Black Cloister is where the Augustinian hermits and monks lived. And he's in the heated room wrestling reckoning with chapter 1, verse 17. And here's what he said. He says, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle of Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, a single word stood in my way. 
For I hated that word, the righteousness of God. It says, I hated that word, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand as that righteousness with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. He read that verse and saw in that not good news, but bad news. Listen to what he says. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, though I had my monk on, though I was a monk among monks, man, he had it going on. I felt that I was a sinner before God. We could import Peter's story and say, I heard the cock crow every day. I lived with the echo of the rooster in my head. I knew that I was a sinner, and I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Paul, tell me what you're getting at, because this isn't good news. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. Here's the better translation. He who through faith is righteous shall live. He says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. It is the righteousness of God revealed by the gospel that is the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Not by works, not by pilgrimage, not by penance, not by indulgence, but by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated the word. Righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. A man named Alistair McGrath wrote on this tower experience. And it's a sweet enough explanation where I'm going to read it. It says, what is Luther talking about in this famous passage? The reason we're not wearing, I'm not wearing a funny hat and you're not paying for indulgences. Which vibrates with the excitement of discovery. It is obvious that his understanding of the phrase, the righteousness of God has changed radically. But what's the nature of this change? The basic change is fundamental. Originally, Luther regarded the precondition for justification as a human work. Penance, indulgence, baptism, pilgrimage. Something which the sinner had to perform before he or she could be justified. Increasingly convinced through his reading of Augustine that such an act was impossible Luther could only understand the righteousness of God as a punishing righteousness. But in this passage, he narrates how he discovered a new meaning of the phrase. A righteousness with which God gives to the sinner. 
In other words, God himself meets his own demand, graciously giving sinners what he requires them to have. Graciously giving sinners what he requires them to have if they are to be justified. And then he gives an analogy that's beautiful. Let us suppose that you're in prison and you're offered your freedom on condition that you pay a heavy fine. The promise is real so long as you can meet the precondition. The promise will be fulfilled. Catholic theology worked on the presupposition initially shared by Luther that you have the necessary money stashed away somewhere. You can't get out except that you pay for it. But you've got the goods stashed away somewhere. As your freedom is worth far more than the money, you're being offered a bargain. So you pay the fine. This presents no difficulty so long as you have the necessary resources. But Luther increasingly came to share the view of Augustine that sinful humanity just doesn't have any money. (laughs) Right? Just doesn't have any money. Mankind is broke. In that regard, Luther was correctly reading the Bible's analysis of man's condition. Now you can see why that caused Luther a problem. Since sinners don't have the money, the promise of freedom has no relevance to their situation. It's like a carrot that you can't reach. It's like the monkey that you trap. You stick a piece of fruit in a jar and he grabs it, but he can't pull it out because he's afraid to let go of it. You can't enjoy it. The good news of the gospel is that you've been given the necessary money with which to buy your freedom. In other words, the precondition has been met for you by someone else. Luther called it an alien righteousness. Man, that's our gospel. That's our good news. This is the message of Romans. The one who by faith is righteous shall live now. I'm going to develop the bad news first because that's what Paul develops first. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Look for Peter. For the wrath of God. Now, first of all, I hope you remember that he called down curses on himself. God, pour your wrath out on me if I'm denying your son. Pour your wrath out on me if I'm lying. The irony is just too beautiful. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You remember Peter's confession? You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Are you looking for Peter? Peter knew who this Jesus was. He confessed him as Lord. He knew who he was, yet here he suppresses the truth about him. Here he denies him. It's like, it's like Paul's writing on Peter, but he's not just writing on Peter. He's writing on mankind. He's writing on the human problem. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking. We could insert some Peter in there. And they warmed their toasty fingers around a charcoal fire. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, this is the first of three scary, seriously condemning phrases. God gave them up. Because they did not share the truth about God. Because they concealed the truth about God, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Peter, three of them. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the second layer of that onion where he's turned over even more. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And here's the third. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here Peter... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now, so far, you might be thinking, man, this isn't me. I, 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 don't, I haven't personally been given over to the lust of my heart. I don't wrestle with lust in my heart. The second given over, that's given over to homosexuality. I don't personally wrestle with homosexuality, so I'm good. You're in the third section. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Ah, I don't necessarily have all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, still good. They're full of deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Anybody unscathed? Anybody still clean? Anybody still tidy? They're gossips. They're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Man, that could describe me in college. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Did that get anybody? Please tell me you're not sitting here unscathed. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Man, I hope you were looking for Peter in there. The three levels of this giving over in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind, all because they knew the truth about God, but they suppressed it. Peter illustrates it beautifully. Peter's lot, you need to realize, is their lot. But for a rooster's crow, a look across a courtyard, and the grace and mercy in the work about what Christ is about to do. You need to realize this is Peter's lot. This is our lot that we are given over, given over, given over, given up, given up, given up, but for Christ. After all, Peter 
was guilty and deserving of wrath. But here's the crazy good news of Romans. Here's just the first glimpse of it. If you were paying attention in that section I just read, verses 18 through 32, you saw them, they, them, they. And look how chapter 2 begins. Therefore, you have no excuse. Right off the bat, that's got to be good news that we're talking about somebody altogether different. The good news written to a church. Remember, this is written to a church. To a church, you're not a them and a they. You're not given over to those things. You're redeemed from those things somehow. Though the wrath of God is what you're due, you're going to be redeemed in the good news. It's what unfolds in the rest of this book. Next, Paul is dealing with a Jewish problem that sounds like a Peter problem. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is dealing with a bunch of Jews that think they've got it going on. And in fact, they sit in judgment of others while they practice the very same things. It sounds like something Peter might have done had he not had this rock-breaking night that he so desperately needed. Remember his claim? I will never bail on you. Though all fall away, I will never bail on you. That sounds like the Jew sitting in judgment to me. But Peter, like the judging Jew, needed to see his unrighteousness. He needed to see it. He needed to hear that rooster crow. So Paul develops that for the Romans. And in some ways, he places the rooster at his post in what unfolds next. He places the rooster at his post for these judging Jews that think they've got it going on, that think they all that. Look at chapter 3, verse 5, key passage. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that's all I'm going to read out of that verse. Paul is dealing with an issue here, but he's making this statement as if it's understood. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that's going to be foundational to where we're going because you can't see the righteousness of God without seeing and experiencing and understanding and reckoning with your unrighteousness. Without a rock-breaking night. In verse 9 of chapter 3, says, Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This isn't saying that life is worthless, because God knits us together in the womb. You have value, but it's saying morally and legally, we are worthless. Add us up, together they become worthless. Morally and legally, we together, humanity, is bankrupt and worthless. Paul is developing them the reality that the cock crows for all. Made me think of Ernest Hemingway's book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. 
Never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. That, that bell represents death. Never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The death bell comes for all and affects all. And the cock crows for all. Never sin to know for whom the cock crows because it crows for thee. No one is righteous. No, not one. Righteous Jew that think you've got it going on. Righteous Southern Baptist that thinks you've got it going on, that you're God's gift to his faith, that you're God's gift to the church. Righteous elder that think you've got it going on. Righteous deacon that think you're the man. Righteous father or husband that think you've got it going on, that you're God's gift to your family. Righteous wife that think you cannot follow anybody because you're God's gift to your family. You need to know the bell tolls for all. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one's more deserving of this gospel. If anybody would have been, it would have been the Jew, the chosen people. And Paul says, man, we were all under sin. We were all doomed. Peter needed to see that he wasn't a special little snowflake. Peter needed to see that he was a man like every, under, every other under the heavy weight of sin. He needed to see and experience his own unrighteousness. Paul wanted the Jews in Rome to see it. I'll tell you right now, I want the Christians in Greenville to see it. Chapter 3, verse 20. This seals it. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being. None. Period. None. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Peter couldn't be good enough. Though I'll fall away, I will never fall away. He thought he could. After all, I'm the rock. I will never fail you, Jesus. Come here, Malchus. I will never fail you. I got it going on, Jesus. But by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of of sin. Peter can't be good enough. The Jew can't be good enough. Nor can you. Peter needed to experience what we need to know that we can't be good enough to be saved. No, not one. That's the bad news. But you need to know that the bad news is the backdrop for the good news. You need to know that it's through our unrighteousness that serves to show the righteousness of God. Remember that verse? If through our unrighteousness, we come to see and engage and enjoy the righteousness of God. Show me someone that's sharing a gospel that's not developing your unrighteousness, and I'll share with you, that's not good news. Because you're not putting God's righteousness on display. The backdrop, it's like invisible ink. You can't see it. You know, you got to put lemon juice on it. The lemon juice is the blood of Jesus and the grace and mercy that he gives us to see our own unrighteousness. That's the lemon juice where you go, ah, now I see the righteousness of God. I couldn't see it but for my own unrighteousness. And then Paul develops the good news in the next verse. He begins to, but now, two sweet words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Hear this. The righteousness of God has been 
manifested. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in chapter 1 of John, it says, The Word became flesh, i.e. became manifest, and dwelt among us. That's the righteousness of God. He showed up. He became manifest. He dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have got to see that in the backdrop. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This Christ's work is the good news. But you can't see it except for experiencing and engaging and reckoning with the bad news. You can't see the greatness of it except that we reckon with the weight of sin that we're imprisoned under. If you don't see yourself in the them of chapter 1, you can't enjoy the good news of the rest of the book. Because you can't see and experience the righteousness of God. You need that. Verse 22 continues. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified only if they are to be justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word means wrath absorber. He absorbed our wrath. Peter is calling it down saying, God pour your wrath out on me if I'm lying. And the good news of the gospel is that God looks from him and says, no, I'm going to pour it out on my son. He'll absorb the wrath that you're due, Peter. He absorbs the wrath that you're due, Paul. Jew. Christian. He's put forth as our propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. The rooster crows for all. But some are given a gift of grace and forgiveness. That's what it says right there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift not to be earned. Then it's not a gift. If it's earned, it's not a gift. If you pay for it, if you purchase it, if you have to maintain it, it's not a gift. It is given to you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The rooster crows for all, but some are given a gift of grace through the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ. And this gift is received by faith, period. By faith. Now back to John chapter 21. Part 2 of Peter's story. Starting in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm bummed out. I denied my Lord. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mourn. I reckon with my own sin. I hear the, the echo of the cock crow in my head right now. 
And they said to him, you know what? We do too. We'll go fishing with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing perfect. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore though. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus found them. You see that? Jesus found them. You think you found Jesus? Jesus found you, friend. Jesus found them on the seashore and said, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Buku, chock-a-block fish, gobs. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Y'all can't paddle fast enough. I think I'll swim. Knowing Peter, I bet they ended up paddling back faster than he could swim. Can you see it? The boat just moving out past him, past him. He says, man, I wish I stayed in the boat. That's Peter. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. Appropriate. Isn't it? A new charcoal fire. Not a place of denial, but a place of restoration. A new charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come here, let's have some breakfast. Let's eat. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think the wording's beautiful. Though all fall away, I will never fall away. It just has a little tone of irony in it. Do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What a beautiful, beautiful joy Peter must have experienced. Standing by a new charcoal fire with a belly full of fish. He's well fed. He's reconciled with his God. It must have felt sort of like Noah stepping out on dry land. Crunch, deliverance. It must have felt a little bit like the nation of Israel stepping out on the far bank of the Red Sea. Deliverance. As he climbed out of the Sea of Tiberias, he must have celebrated deliverance as he ate and talked with his substitute, his Savior. 
Romans chapter 4 verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed means happy. Can you imagine how happy Peter must have been? Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You can't know these things unless you reckon with and know your lawless deeds. If you're oblivious to it, if you've never heard the cock crow, if you've been in context where they don't want you to hear the cock crow, you're a special little snowflake. God has a special plan for your life. He loves you so much. Yes, he loves you with a cross. He loves you with a substitute. He loves you through the blood of Jesus. That's how he loves you. If you've been in a context where you've never engaged your lawless deeds, you don't know that you need forgiveness. It's just news. But Paul says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who's heard the cock crow and still has him reverberating in his ear. That's what Peter was. Peter was a blessed, happy man. Paul was this blessed, happy man. Here Paul is referencing a man named David who was another happy, blessed, forgiven man who certainly heard the cock crow. He's referencing Psalm chapter 32. The posture you're seeing in these men and hearing in these men, the posture that's the appropriate posture is hands raised and open, the posture of personal surrender, the posture of moral and legal bankruptcy, the posture of deep dependence and hope on that alien righteousness, that blessed other. That's the position that you hear in these men. That's the position and posture of worship. You need to know that these are who he came and died for. John chapter 9, he illustrates that man as a blind man. I came for the blind ones, not for the ones who think they see. That was the Pharisees. I came for the blind ones. I came for the sick ones, Matthew chapter 9. I came for the ones needing a physician. I came for the poor in spirit, Matthew chapter 5. I came for the needy and the heartbroken, Matthew chapter 5. I came for the, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, hearing the echo of the cock crow, Matthew chapter 5. That's who I came for. That's who he died for. That's the good news. And you can't see it, but you hear it and see it and reckon with your unrighteousness. You can't see his righteousness. Except that you keep that in view. You run daily to his righteousness. You grab it like that. Man, I'm racing to his righteousness yet again today. I need it. If you're trying to share the good news and you're leaving this part out, this isn't good news. It's just news. With this in view, it's good news. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to close with this passage. Listen. Just listen. For while we were still weak, while our fingers were still toasty from the denial fire, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the seeing or the well. He died for the poor and the blind and the sick and the needy 
and the heartbroken and the hungry and the thirsty. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. While we're still sinners. So if you think you've got to get your life tidied up before you can come and walk with Christ, guess what? You never will. You'll be a terminal place. Someday when I get cleaned up, I'll come follow Jesus. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's our propitiation. Spared. He becomes our substitute. We're saved from the wrath of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not a them and a they anymore. We're a you and a we. We have now received reconciliation. Christ died for the Peters and the Pauls. He died for the Davids. He died for the blind, the sick, the poor, the needy, the lost. The rooster's crow and the loving look across the courtyard is a sweet and great mercy. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Let me pray. Lord, oh, that you give us this great mercy of seeing our unrighteousness. Not as a bunch of beat down losers, but as a bunch of people that are scandalized, shocked, surprised, fueled, directed, ravaged by the good news in front of that deep, dark backdrop of our real state. Lord, I I thank you so much for the word that shows us the same thing it showed Martin Luther. If we but read it, if we eat every bite, we see a deep, dark, desperate situation where we are turned over and turned over and turned over. But then we see the you and the grace and the mercy in the rest of the story. Lord, I pray that I pray that as a result of the time that we spent together this morning, that those who already knew the gospel will enjoy it more. That those who didn't will be shocked by it. I pray too that it will find purchase. That those who've been shocked by it and surprised by it will want to walk with you and follow you. Lord, I pray that those who've been shocked by it and surprised by it will want to take a 100-meter swim to get to Jesus and to eat some fish and to be reconciled with their Creator. Lord, I pray you'll use this time that we spent together this morning for your glory and for the furtherance of the kingdom and the clarity of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing. take this bread and this juice, we proclaim something. We proclaim a death. Uh, We proclaim something beautiful and awful at the same time.
And when we take it and eat it, we're proclaiming that death as atonement, as the payment, the punishment outside of us. And the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim together, Peter, listen, you can't measure up. You may have all the desire in the world. You may have the greatest intentions this week. Peter, you can't do it. Let's proclaim his death until he, cl- until he comes. If you find yourself tired, join the club. If you find yourself confused by regulations of a brother or a brother's lack of regulations and righteousness rules and you're tired by that, proclaim Christ's death. That's what you do with that confusion and grace. Proclaim his death, not your righteousness, not your behavior. This kills behavior right here. This kills it. And his death kills death. And so we rest and proclaim his death. And it's a good proclamation. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Remember and proclaim his death until he comes. Take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes back, take and drink. Father, as we move into a portion of our worship where we give an offering and a tithe, we want to just say to you that we are a blessed people you have provided time and time again. You continue to prove yourself faithful in taking care of us in clothing and feeding and rest, and you have been way too good to us. And we also want to just admit to you that this giving, this worship, is that, and it's not an earning or an attempt to earn back anything, but in worship, we give, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The uh, song, Find Us in Pieces, I think that's uh, an appropriate way to respond to those sort of realities. Um, almost like begging for a dark night and begging for it that we're attentive to it, not if it happens, but when it happens. That when we sin, that we hear the cock crow, that we see the look of our Savior. And that we connect to what happens next. If you do, it makes you a needy, desperate worshiper. And I think those are synonymous. I think those are synonymous. Needy, desperate worshiper. It makes it to where church is not an activity. It's a gathering of other 
broken pieces of rock. It's a gathering of gravel, right? Man, how could I not gather with everybody else that's broken too? We can together enjoy this great story. We can together be encouraged. That work was sufficient. That work is finished. Remember, that's what the people of God do. That's what church is. When we lose sight of the gospel, we lose all of it. We become, I don't know, something. But we've lost. If we lose that, we lose it all. Worship dies. And we can still meet. We can still gather. And I can give a talkie talk. And we can go home. And we forget about what we heard. And we don't engage it between Sundays. And we may or may not be back the next week. Depends on how guilty we might feel. You see how easy it can deteriorate? We've got to be stirred up by way of reminder what this story is. We've got to engage it often, engage it truly. Otherwise, we forget. I thought often about the love of God. Man, I love the love of God. But the love of God is so misunderstood. One of the first, I think it was the first verse I ever learned. The second one was, for all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. My dad gave me a pack of peanut M&M's for learning it. Because I remember that. I remember the M&M's. I got a peanut back of peanut M&M's for this, this other one too. John 3.16. I mean, that's oftentimes the first verse a child learns. And how do we learn it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's sort of this expansive love. And then Jesus pops in. Boop. God loves the world and then there's Jesus. But that verse properly translated... The, the, uh, there's like a Holman Christian standard or something like that that does a really good job of it. That says God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish. That is a surgical love. There's not this big gobs of gooey love out there. And then there's Jesus. What's out here is justice and wrath and holiness. What do the cherubim say about God all day long? Holy, holy, holy. We've got to see this backdrop where we see this holy God and this fallen, unrighteous man so that we see the righteousness of God in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. If this is not in the picture, you don't see this. You don't. And church is not desperation. It's an activity. And Jesus, you love, but you wouldn't die for. When you see this, you see what he's done? That creates martyrs. That creates people that will move to Kazakhstan, or Jordan, or Libya, or Teopisca, Mexico. That's what it does. Or to the north side of town. Or to L3. To Tuesday, engaging your family. That's what it creates. A daily desperation. I'm going to end with this passage. It's appropriate way to end our morning. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Man, that's good news. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. And stick around. We're going to have lunch, uh, enjoying some time together with Biola. This is our last Sunday. Um, uh, Is it the last official Sunday? And then you're gone to New Mexico and then to Nigeria. So um, this side of glory, possibly, hopefully not, because maybe we'll... Go to Nigeria, or she'll come here, or, or something. But spend some time in spend some time with Biola today. Biola's been a treasure. Uh, 
for us. God has been good and gracious to give us time walking with you, Viola. We love you. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. I pray that we see the backdrop and the foreground. I pray that we enjoy both, that we keep them in tension, that we marvel together, that we gather together as desperate, needy worshipers. Thank you so much for your word and your work of the Spirit. I pray that he brings this home for us this week. Or two, I want to thank you for the time we've had with Biola. What a sweet journey it's been together. We see your fingerprints and design all over her being here and walking with us. And we know that this isn't the end, but just moving to a new phase of walking together. Lord, we pray for her journey in Nigeria. I pray that she will be salty and bright and aromatic. We pray already for a church that she can be part of, a people that she can walk with, gravel that she can be part of. Lord, thank you so much for Biola and the ministry that she is to so many, or the ministry that you are through her. Lord, too, I want to bless the food before we eat. Just pray that you will, um, or we thank you for your provision, and uh, thank you for the time that we have together to enjoy you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.